Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewellery of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweller since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to Rule of Three, a podcast about comedy. I'm Jason Hazley. And I'm Joel Morris. And as usual, we're joined by someone who makes comedy to talk about something funny that they love. By taking it apart, maybe we'll learn something about how comedy works, or we'll just quote bits from it and giggle until we're finished. Both approaches are valid. Our special guest today is the award-winning writer and performer John Finnemore. John, hello. 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 Um, you've just finished series 55 of Souvenir Programme, haven't yes, you? Yes, me and my team of uh, 600 writers and um, intelligent primates, yes. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, you, and your last episode of that has been nominated for a Pulitzer Prize for recursion, hasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, we'll see what, you know, the Nobel committee are dragging their feet but uh, now that <laughs> that was an absolutely extraordinary episode i mean oh, it was a real tour de you. force i think i sent you an email saying you're basically Jimi hendrix you? <laughs> yeah which i was delighted about because no one has ever in the past nor will ever again in the future compared me to Jimi hendrix but it's now happened <laughs> once it's your, it's your psychedelic stylings and enormous hair <laughs> absolutely <laughs> your producer and our friend ed morrish um at some point told me precisely how many sketches you had single-handedly written for Souvenir Programme, and it slightly frightened me, because I think it's more than Joel and I will ever write in our yeah. lifetimes, and there are two of us. Right. It's also that the sketch shows usually have a team of people. That's, that's mm. how you do a sketch show, because they're hungry beasts. They eat material yeah. really fast, and the yeah. usual logic is that will exhaust... The finest minds in Britain. <laughs> and it hasn't exhausted this finest mind. It's amazing. Well, it's just, it's probably the same number of man hours, or maybe a few more. Um, it's just, I do all the man hours, and so I start writing it much earlier, and I do tryouts, and I, you know, spend a lot of time on, on writing it. Um, in the same way, I might spend that amount of time writing 10 sketches for 10 different shows, yeah. or 10 different people might write 10 sketches for me. Um, so it's just, it's but, just admin. 
You've taken all the glamour out of it. It's just no, no, I love... Well, I don't love doing it. I don't love writing at all. But I, li- I, I really enjoy being able to do what I like with it and being able to... And it allows me, I think, to do sketches in different... Well, I can try to make sketches as different as possible, knowing that the fact that I'm writing it all will, will you know, despite my best efforts in a way, make it co- cohere. So I can do big, silly ones with talking animals and I can do, uh, you know, polemical ones about stuff that makes me angry. I can do parodies. I can do little character monologue pieces... If you had a writer's room like we've both been in often together, (laughs) think of you as a sort of two-headed beast. Uh, (laughs) Well, then if you allow people to do whatever, then you get something that's so diverse that it doesn't doesn't feel like anything. It doesn't feel like any one beast. Uh, So you have to, if you're going to have a writer's room, you have to either have a showrunner or say these are the rules. Everything's a parody or nothing's a parody. Or I suppose it allows me to do a more um, old-fashioned sketch show with no particular theme, just sort of sketch blackout, sketch blackout, because the theme is I wrote it all. The linking theme for your show is that it's your brain and your voice, which I suppose is what's making people uh, buy into the world. You know, I don't have a stable of characters I bring out every week. Uh, it is just, here are the, the 12 best things that we that Ed and I decided were worthy of going in this episode. So the theme is goodness. Yeah. Just, just, good ones. just good ones. You don't do the bad ones. Oh. Well, I write the bad ones, obviously. It takes ages to write the bad ones, oh, I know. Oh, if you could time? just skip. <laughs> an and you can't even, even when something's looking bad as, as you write it, you can't go, oh, well, I'm writing a bad one, I can skip that. Because as we know, sometimes the bad one turns into a good one later on when you realise something about it. That legendary thing that, is it David Renwick who wrote the Mastermind sketch? Yeah. The answer to the previous question. Uh, and he'd thrown that in the bin. He had to yeah. take it out of the bin and, and sellotape it back Yeah, together. I think he'd literally torn it up because he tried to write a clever sketch. I think he wanted to write a sort of um, Palin Jones sketch because they were, you know, young and funny. And he thought, oh, well, I could do that. I'll write a clever sketch. And then he wrote this. Oh, this is ridiculous. Sort of, uh, no one will, there's no laughs in this. It's just a crossword puzzle. And ripped it up, <laughs> threw it away. Good evening. Your name, please. Uh, good evening. You have chosen to answer the question before last each time. Is that correct? Charlie Smithers. <laughs> And I mean, it's terrific. It's, but you, you know, don't know as the writer how it's going to play for the for an audience, and the audience can't see the hard work that's gone into it, and can't see the scaffolding. Probably. No, sometimes you. Know, I would say you know to within a degree, because I try out my uh, stuff for the sketch show. We do uh, little tryouts for an audience of about seventeen. I try and do as many as they'll be recording, so about five or six. Uh, and I write lots more material than we need, and some of it doesn't. Some that only goes out in the preview, and then some that gets rewritten, and then we record too much as well, and not all of that goes into the edit. It's about 72 sketches for a series, and I probably write 10 or so more. Well, I probably write 20 or so more than that, but uh, we, we leave 8 to 10 out in the edit as well. So that's probably what Ed was thinking about with the big number, because that's, yeah, 7, 72 issues, plus the ones that didn't make it. Plus all of those years in salt mines with writer sketches for Dead Ringers and for Michelin Web. Yeah. I say salt mines. It, lovely fellows, lovely times. But, yeah, uh, lovely salt. Know. Everyone loves salt. <laughs> have you written things which have absolutely tanked in tryout? I've had stuff that just nobody got, including the cast, and people sort of titter along, and then I realise, oh right, that yeah, that reference just doesn't work at all. You don't know what you don't know what I mean. I tried to do one about the before clickbait was a widely 
a widely known thing, but when it was just sort of starting to happen and all yeah. those little adverts, I tried to do one about you know, local mum invents this trick, dermatologists hate her. I'd seen a lot of that advert because obviously I'm always frantically Googling for skincare products, as you can tell. Yeah. <laughs> so naturally, <laughs> my. You're like, like a, an orb. Oh, I'm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm as glossy as a seal. And, <laughs> and for that reason, I was seeing a lot of this advert and clearly it hadn't really percolated through. And so for everyone else, this was just a totally baffling. A sort of jam style sketch in which a thing happens without an explanation. <laughs> the cast really liked it, although none of them got it. Um, so, the thing you brought us uh, to talk it's my about own show. today. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but it's, it's thematically not miles off. We're talking, yes. we're talking here about what what is it, any industry is called broken comedy because no one commissions sketch shows anymore so they started yeah. calling them broken <laughs> comedy but sketch shows but a sketch show with a voice a sketch mm. show that has its own world uh, and I imagine is one that influenced you or that you loved yeah strictly speaking the day to day was the thing that I the first thing I discovered for myself that was my own you know there was lots of comedy that I enjoyed before that but it had either been my parents introducing it to me or people at school saying oh you got to watch Blackadder it's amazing but then this was the first day to day was the first thing that I literally like watched the first one of as it went out and went oh wow I you know I really truly love this and also it's mine it's mine and I found it and then what I I'm not talking about that today I'm talking about on the hour which was the uh, radio version that preceded it although I came to it later but pretty much at the same yes. time I it was most, the same order did, for, yeah. for, for me as well I, we, I think we were living together when the day show yeah. first went out in 94 didn't we oh god I, I remember videoing it <clears throat> and wearing the video out in the first week I found my diary <laughs> from that year and it just says on each day watch the day today again <laughs> watch the day today twice today took it around someone else's house it was like this viral thing that I didn't do that I wasn't confident enough to go into other people and say oh this is my comedy taste watch this but I definitely I so I hoarded it to myself it <laughs> like, um, like on the hour reward Towards um, repeat visits, doesn't oh, it? Yeah. I mean, it is so gloriously funny, yeah. and you just can't move for gags. They yeah. are everywhere. Yeah. And again, although it's got such a, because just in case it's new to anyone, it's um, uh, it's a new show. It's a parody of. Uh, news shows and also magazine shows but then it sort of broadens out into parodies of all kinds of little Radio 4 shows by saying oh well here's a preview of you know the travel programme or whatever But first the news The Bank of England has lost the pound, plunging the financial world into turmoil this afternoon Smarting officials say a search has been mounted and there is no need to panic It was a way of doing a parody show that was incredibly thorough and real and the people who came out of it then went on to to spread their worldview because it's Armando Iannucci and Chris Morris mm-hmm. as sort of the, the chief engines behind it. But it also features uh, it's the birth of Alan Partridge mm-hmm. and Steve Coogan's on the on the cast. It's got voices within it. Uh, Lee and Herring are writing for it. But voices Rebecca within France it. in it. Dune McKeegan's in it. It's yeah. people who there's went on to great David Schneider, There's I mean, there's almost no one who didn't, which is remarkable as well. There's on, on cast or crew and writers. There, there's nobody who's not working in comedy today and mostly kind of leading the industry in comedy today. Mm. It's extraordinary. The thing, when I went back and looked at it, I suppose this was inevitable, but you, the cast photo that came up, you got, they're so young! They're <laughs> nine, aren't they? Now, I know that's, you know, as we get older, that happens with everything. You look at Monty Python and go, oh, they're so young. But, but the thing about On the Hour is that it looks sounds rather so you know so polished they've grown up it's very complex in the editing and the all the the sound engineering and all the ridiculous things they do to parody and then sometimes parody and sometimes just be silly with this yeah. world um it makes it sound like a much more accomplished you look at them and think they can't possibly have done that what, they're children what's amazing about it i think and why probably i had the same reaction as you as i was looking at photos cast photos and going they're so young is that 
I was younger than them, obviously, when when the show came out. Mm. And I looked to them and went, oh, you're my big brothers, all the grown-ups. And you've worked out how the world works. You're yeah. like, a, like a cool cousin who's going to yeah. go, hey, you know how politics works? Yeah. And they, they've, they've taken the back off the clock. And what fascinated me about it is because it is just silly. It is mm. nonsense in a shape. Is that the people behind it, if you look at Iannucci and Morris, they come from a production background. Mm. So they're fascinated not with what's in the news mm. or what's in the content of radio, but what it sounds like and how it's made. Mathematicians have announced the existence of a new whole number, which lies between 27 and 28. We don't know why it's there or what it does, said Cambridge mathematician Dr. Hilliard Halliard. We only know that it doesn't behave properly when put into equations and that it is divisible by six, though only once. Here's our science correspondent, Nick Watkins. I'm sorry, we, uh, we don't appear to... Minimum wage! Um. And they're constantly showing you the producer and the tapes. This is how the media works. And afterwards you go, all oh, right, so now I know how the media works. The grown-ups yeah. have shown me, so now I won't trust it as well. And it is like a sort of slightly jaded manager at a shop showing you round the back <laughs> how they make the stuff. Yeah. And I think that's what made me suck it up because it wasn't just uh, Roy Hattersley is fat. Mm. It was the news wants you to think Roy Hattersley is fat. Yes, they actually do weekending at one point, don't they, which was the big t- uh, satire show at oh, the time. Yeah. And they, a room, they many of them, certainly Lee and Herring, I think, or Herring, would have been in of uh, just... <laughs> like jaded satirist going well I thought maybe uh, John Major we could take it back to uh, Robin Hood times and uh, with John Major as Robin Hood and Gorbachev very much Sheriff of Nottingham I thought that's interesting things we could get out of that and, uh, it's, uh, wow that really is biting the hand not only that feeds you but the hand of your you know, kind of next door neighbour yeah. you know we don't tend to to poke fun at other comedy shows, do we, when we write sketches for people? I think people. Armando had produced Weekending, hasn't yes, he? Yes, I think he had, I'm yeah. I'm sure he had. Yeah. It's everyone involved has been behind the scenes making news, and they've all had uh, news training. I mean, Chris Morris had had done the, the BBC News course, yeah. so he knew how it was made. And there's a brilliant line in it, which I always love this stuff, where you feel, all oh, the grown-ups are showing me something. And there's a great line where he, where he says something like, uh, and now we're going over to so-and-so and so-and-so, and it's a blue tape, so we know it's from the US. And you yeah. went, right, that's a joke just for the BBC production team. But I went, all oh, right, because we all know that the news desk, it's a blue cartridge, that's a... And they're letting you see right. behind the scenes of the news you've accepted as a facade. Yeah. As this monolithic voice, and they're going, you know, it's just people who make it. Yes, while simultaneously really exaggerating that monolithic voice, the sort of the main Chris Morris voice he does. Although listening back to it, I, I've forgotten just how much Chris Morris is in it. Yeah. I thought it was Chris Morris presents it, and then everyone else plays everyone else. But actually, Chris Morris presents it and plays about half of the everyone else. I had exactly the same reaction. I thought this. It feels like the cast in it. In other words. Coogan, Schneider, Front, McKeon, all those people, they feel like they're the second unit because so much of it is yeah. just Chris and then throwing to Chris doing another voice yeah, yeah. and then throwing to Chris doing another voice. And then maybe Chris interviewing a, a member of public or something. But, but And then there'll be a colour supplement and he won't be in it and it'll be Patrick Marber, who's the one we haven't mentioned yet, inter- yeah. interviewing the others doing silly voices. And it, so it really does feel like... Uh, a support act, a bit like, you know, Punt and Dennis popping up on Just the Carrot. Yeah. <laughs> it's got this odd thing of it, there being two units working. One maybe yeah. uh, is Armando's unit, which is cast like a radio show. And then there's 
Chris Morris's unit, which is him sped up, slowed down, doing impressions, silly sound effects, more like a Kenny Everett, Vivian Stanchel, cut up, like, yeah. a, like a radio DJ would make a show. And they've been stuck together. But again, we'd make a return to this is broken comedy. This is a sketch show that's got a single voice. And also, they do something which you I wouldn't have thought worked at all. And I, you know, I, I wouldn't have done this, even in his bits. There are various ways he goes with it. Sometimes he interviews... Patrick Marber playing a reporter. I think sometimes he it's a cut-up of Douglas Hurd answering his questions, you know, <laughs> answering the wrong questions to make them stupid. Sometimes it's a member of the public or a junior, you know, a genuine, some poor woman from the RSPCA who he does a prank call on. Sometimes it's a member of the public. So you don't know until you're kind of 30... You have to work out until you're 30 seconds into the piece. Well, which one is he doing now? Is this a real stand p- passerby or is this... Uh, oh, no, I think I can hear... Uh, David Schneider's voice, I think. And sometimes you don't even know by the end of it. And you think, well, that I wouldn't have thought that would work. I would have thought, no, you want to know what the joke is. What's the rules? If this isn't a real person, then it's not as funny as if it is, or vice versa. But, but, you know, they pull it off. But I remember Chris saying something about how he did his cut-ups and things. And he said, it's not funny unless the audience know it's fake. Yeah. And what he's trying to do is stay maybe a step ahead of you in guessing how it's been faked. But there's no point in any of the the cut-ups where he's attempting to do what would now be called, not even fake news, but like the parody news sites now try and pass their news off as real news and they're delighted when someone picks up on it. Oh, right. And there's there's no sense that he wants to trick you into thinking that that really is Douglas Hurd because he'll go across to and say the Queen said something and it'll be a man's voice or it'll be... You can hear the futs and the pops in the edits. There's no oh, there's ca- the Queen. I mean, some of the best cut-ups, uh, I think, are when it's just one line and it just... So it's the Queen. Uh, the Queen uh, has beaten her sister in a drinking contest and then cuts to the Queen saying, As I stand here today, I am conscious. <laughs> <laughs> they're constantly letting you in on how it's, it's a magician. It feels like Penn and Teller. That's sort of like... They're doing a magic trick to show you how the media works and the easiest way is to keep pulling the sides off the boxes and saying, right. this is just cut up. If you wanted to make a news story, this was how you'd edit it. And it's it's showing you the artifice of news. And I, I, I love that about it because it's not... You can listen to it now and unlike most ostensible satire or shows, you don't know what was going on in the news at the time. Because it's just about news. It's not about the news. It's about news as a thing. This is On The Hour. Arise, Sir News. But also, it's full of jokes. It's full (laughs) of stupid, um, just stupid wordplay and, you know, ridiculous one-liner news stories. God, it's got some of the best silly names I've ever heard in it. Oh, my God. There was, uh, what was the one that I nearly crashed the car listening to at the weekend when Peter's Sister's Christmas came (laughs) up? (laughs) And there's, there's, basket. Yeah, and there's people like um, <laughs> Gavin Shape. Yes. Um, and there's at one point there's someone called Conan Batters Christ. <laughs> <laughs> it's got something which we talked about ages ago as, a, as a, a thing that we like to do, and I think we probably got it from on the hour and the day to day and other people, which is you're looking at the, a newspaper or the news or listening to the news and you defocus. Yeah. You're not paying attention. It's like when you're doing the washing up and the news is on. When we used to do the Framley Examiner, which was a spoof mm. local newspaper, we would actually just look at local newspapers and defocus until the headlines swam in front of us. Yeah. And it had the feeling and the rhythm and the shape of news, but you pour gibberish into it. And they've got 
lots of areas they do it with names and uh, headlines and because if you defocus it sounds like real news but it isn't and again we, we talk about this a lot the bucket the bucket that's containing the gibberish is absolutely secure yeah and there's no point there's no leaks in the bucket the bucket is tight and you can pour porridge and spanners and old hammers into it and it'll still be a bucket that fascination with how basically this sounds like radio Apparently, it's, but it actually, it's not making any sense. Mm. Um, is a thing that you've hooked onto, isn't it? With um, in a souvenir program where you do things like how radio sounds if you're not really paying attention, or recently the the the, the beautiful one you did in that last episode, of the last series about how the weather sounds, even if you've tuned in especially <laughs> and are trying yeah. to concentrate on yes, it. Yes, that way that you, I find it impossible anyway. It's by the time they've got through the bit where they. I can listen for the bit where they tell me about what the weather's been like. I know, isn't that bizarre? <laughs> Which I don't know why they do. In the east-west and south upstairs, we can expect a high horse on the landing in the late 30s. And that will be jostled by a rude-head waiter of 54 or 55 towards the mid-mid-mid-morning. Back to front, it'll be a fried egg for most of the country. With a butcher's dog unfurling a wicker hammock later, expecting twins before dropping down and giving me 20. Which is very... Yeah, maybe I just ripped off uh, now. Sorry, guys. I I think that's from a good tradition. That comes to me, in my mind, that goes, well, that's the rhythm of Vivian Stanchel, Mm. which is a huge influence on Chris Morris and Amanda Mm. Inucci, and the rhythm of John Lennon. Lennon's poetry is all that. It's just gibberish in the shape of sense, which he would have got from Milligan, probably, or Bob. But, yeah, and Edward Lear. Oh, Jabberwocky is that. Jabberwocky is the shape of sense. Yeah. With the sense emptied out. As long as you hit the right number of posts along the way, you you don't get lost in the sentence. And as you say, the more that there is a bucket that you're pushing against, the Jabberwocky is in the shape of a other epic poem. And this is perfect example of that, where you've got something really constrained that you are then talking nonsense in the headlines section at the beginning where oh. they just do four or five absolutely nonsensical noises. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> we, we found but this when we were, we were doing Framley, when we were doing the Framley Examiner, that yeah. we found that once you had this, this this bucket, this form, that people knew... What it is it saying to people? You know what to expect next. Yeah. You know how a quiz show works. You know how the news works. You know your brain is probably two or three beats ahead of, of where we're going with this. And you know the next three things they're going to say. Mm. When they don't say those things, you can put anything in there as long as the rhythm... Uh, is maintained. And we found when we were doing Framley, we could do the broad shape of a news story or something that was recognisably about local news, like a bus lane or something. Mm. But the real joy came when you had the look of an advert or a classified advert. Yeah. And you could just put gibberish in. Sometimes we would just write down what we were saying in the room <laughs> and then put it in the right, put the, the carriage returns in the right place. And people would say, oh, this is really funny. It's not funny. It's just that it's the shape of an advert with literal nonsense in it. I don't think you did that. I think you often put excellent jokes oh, just was, on the hour. There would be jokes they, they in use, there. Yeah. But there would also be sometimes we would put gibberish in and sometimes people would go, this is delightfully silly. And you go, you're only laughing because you know that's not yeah, meant to yeah, be there. Yeah. It's in the wrong place. You're enjoying the fact that you've recognised the shape of something. And you've yeah. also recognised that this is an imposter. It's a boojum. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's that one where he does, um, he's been out on the street and the broadcast has gone wrong, which is technically brilliantly well handled. He then has to get a taxi back to Broadcasting House and he's obviously got a nagra around his neck and a mic in his hand. And he walks into Broadcasting House and actually starts upsetting security mm. on the front door who are going, can I see your pass, please? And he says, I'm bursting with news. You've got to let me through. <laughs> if you stop me, I'll explode. <laughs> <laughs> and he also starts with just a little word there. He starts that bit by saying, I am precisely bang outside Broadcasting House. <laughs> 
precisely bang. <laughs> well, yeah, then you, that's another of those where you think, oh, is this uh, Steve Coogan doing his, uh, doing his security card? No, no, you're, you are trying to get into Broadcasting House without showing your pass. Yeah, and he ends up in the fire safety officer's office, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. Trying to get him to... This has got to this gonna be an emergency studio. newsroom or something. Yeah. And, and, and that guy is not playing. And by the end of it, you, yeah. Yeah, he is, he's ready uh, to pin him, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, that's right. He's really squaring his shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to what you were saying about the because they've got Coogan and, and Rebecca and the others, they're extremely good at doing uh, naturalist performances and sounding like uh, real people. But then when he's talking to a real person, there's still, there's a level above where you oh, go, oh, no, yeah. that is, un- somehow that's uncounterfeitable, that... Uh, <laughs> that baffled person in the street voice. The law. People go on about tightening up the law, don't they? Yes. What are your feelings about that particular idea? Well, I agree thoroughly, would. Yeah. A couple of turns or a bit more, do you say? Well, you say a couple, I say about six. What effect do you think those six turns would have? I, I, I would uh, hope that it would bring them back to their senses. Make its presence felt in their yeah. brain sack. That yeah. you think that can't be. It's not just a question of whether he could do the accent or not, because of course he could do the accent. It's, uh, although, side note, I love that at this age, Re- uh, Rebecca Front can do American, but the rest of them, even Steve Coogan, <laughs> they have long segments in America and it's all a bit wobbly, just as me and my cast, but particularly me, are doing <laughs> sketches on Radio 4 to this day. Uh, so I was quite pleased that, oh, good, even Steve Coogan went a bit. Uh, I mean, these days, of course, you can do it flawlessly, but those yeah. days, yeah. Uh, yeah. Her Barbara Wintergreen is making. Right. It's like when someone first can do a Prime Minister in an impression show and then everyone copies it afterwards. She got how an American presenter talks. And now if you do an American presenter, man or woman, you are copying... You are partly doing Rebecca Front doing one. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Mother Nature is is a woman! It's an issue that's divided the USA. Women's League protester Donna Doubtfire dubs Morgan's legislation geographic gynefascism. It's geographic gynefascism. They constantly kept finding the key to cabinets of jokes that we hadn't Or parodying things that just hadn't occurred to... Or or even specific people in particular tones of voice that just hadn't occurred to you to do. The the guy who presents feedback. (laughs) And it's not a precise parody of him but it's also not imprecise it's not just some guy it is that kind of a voice one of the things that really struck me which i don't think had occurred to me before was the number of animals that are in it and i thought (laughs) that does make sense because chris uh, studied zoology at university so uh, and there's so many stories that are in one way or another hung on an animal there's a thing about the blue bottle Terrorising the village of yeah. Dedham, and yeah. there's there's that entire. And thing then about they describe the they have that intense description of, of a blue bottle in yeah. the way that, which I suddenly realised the second time. Oh, this is probably a parody of how they were talking about missiles at the time. Would that have been <laughs> the first of our war? Would it have been because I remember Scud and fetishising the, yeah, the, the, yeah. the Patriot missile is an X and a Y, and it's mm. got a, so describing the you know the, the uh, blue bottle having <laughs> six party coloured legs, and yeah. so <laughs> animals are funny. Yeah, everyone has animals. Yeah, I've actually had... So uh, when I'm putting together Souvenir Programme, so we just record a great big load of sketches and then we allot them into episodes afterwards and we do it with post-its or little cards and move them around and there's all these things we don't want to clash. We don't want too many gang shows or too many two-handers or at least to follow one another uh, and we don't want, you know, any particular cast member to, to not be in an episode, that kind of thing. Uh, and, but then we've got more and more... And, and we've had to add the category animal whimsy now. Because <laughs> I do so many animal sketches with even when I know that I shouldn't and I think... But I just... You're addicted. They keep on... They keep, so now I try to keep it down to, you know, two, two animal sketches at most... Or two sketches <laughs> referencing animals at most in per episode. <laughs> 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code GLOW. Today's fronty prongs. The headlines. Rocket curtsied before blowing me up, claims General. Embarrassed dog found sniffing wreck of Titanic. And man with glass face, too disgusting for trial, rules judge. On the hour. And there's, there's a thing that I noticed, again, listening to loads of this back-to-back. There's a joke that they do again and again and again that is never not funny, which is something slipping or disappearing that can't slip or disappear. Like Lancaster. Yeah. Ireland bursts, the Circle Line station slip round, someone loses a mouth. And just time to let you know that there's a build-up of heavy traffic on the M4 westbound at Junction 12 as the hangar gyratory system is being towed to Malmesbury this afternoon. Yes. Which is just a joke that we love as well. But And then you've got, yeah, and then later on you've got the in Father Ted, they're taking out the roads for the winter in Craggy Island. So it's... <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think we might have actually stolen the road slipping round without realising it for Framley. One of those oh, unconscious really? places. A village gets cut off and is, is starving to death because its junction's gone missing. Oh. <laughs> and I looked, 
that and went, oh, yeah, I think that may be one of those things that just went in. Yeah. Hey, here's a professional question. Have mm. you ever found that you have accidentally plagiarised an idea? Yes. Yeah. Uh, We've all got one of these stories, haven't we? People think plagiarism is something that's always premeditated, and usually it's just in the mulch in your head. Well, I think there's three broad categories of plagiarism. There is actual plagiarism, which definitely happens. Secondly, there is just coincidence, and it's astonishing just how specific you can have the same idea Mm. with something that, for some reason, you know that, you know, I've I've had that with sketches where something will come out after I've written a sketch, but before... Oh, I think um, I did one about Thomas the Tank Engine, wondering, you know, what's the works behind the face? How much of that is... (laughs) and how much of it is guts and uh, and how does it how does driving it work so I got Simon Kane as Thomas cheerily saying yes pop a ball just put your hands into my brains and massage the lobe until I know where to go Uh, and so we'd written and I think recorded that certainly written it and then Charlie Brooker tweeted sort of the same observation about it's the sort of thing that is going to come up it will be plagiarism if such a thing as Thomas the Tank Engine didn't exist Right. I always find that, that usually when people say, oh, that's plagiarism, it's an observation about something in culture that we all share, that we yeah. all have watched the same television programmes. And if you've got a comic brain, you will have run it yeah. past probably the same process in order to make a, a witty observation on the sofa. But that's maybe not even a good example of just how something that seems, well, that must be plagiarism because two people couldn't possibly have yeah. come up with that thing. It's not an observation on a thing. It's just a weird collision of ideas. But it does happen. Yeah. Uh, and it happens more than people think particularly. And I've done this myself if they think they're on their own end of the plagiarism i did a a silly joke about um somebody doing their phd on a concordance for all of the works of the bronte sisters so that you could look up any reference from any of the bronte's books and see which of her sisters had used it in other contexts and then the examiner saying did you do do this just so you can call it a brontosaurus (laughs) yes yes i did And then uh, within the year, which is why I realise it can't be a plagiarism, somebody published a brontosaurus, you know, oh. pre- pretty much literally really? that. Yeah. And and I certainly looked, and it came out in the Christmas book market, and I certainly sort of looked at that and thought, oh, right, you got out, that out pretty quickly. And then realised, yeah, you got it out so quickly that you must have already had the idea. Yeah. It's just a pun waiting to happen, and it happened to two people at the same time. But the third type of plagiarism, which is the one you asked me about, and definitely also happens, is the accidental one where you think it's you... But then you, you know, with a horrible sinking feeling, you rewatch um, absolutely or something and go, oh, no, no, that is, that's definitely where I got it. There's a bit in cap impression in my sitcom about pilots. I used to do cold opens, little, um, uh, usually one of the pilots talking on the PA, and I did one of the captain saying, um, just to reassure you, there's absolutely nothing to worry about. <laughs> Stop. And then coming back. And then I went a different way from that. But it's a Python joke. It's just, oh. I mean, it's literally, they have a little bit of um, preface to it of, you know, isn't it boring up here? Oh, I know, I know what will liven things up. And then they do that and then they enjoy the reaction of, the, oh, yeah. of, their, of their passengers. But it is, um, it is the same joke. And I watched all of Python when I was a kid several times, so there's no way I haven't heard it. Yeah, it was so far down in the mulch that when it occurred to me, I thought it had occurred to me as my idea. I think you forget as well how much growing up, if you're a comedy fan, mm. you learn not only about comedy, but about what happens on the flight deck of a plane from watching right, comedy right. shows. I think I knew about planes because of airplane and Python sketches. <laughs> so when my brain goes, what happens on, a, on the flight deck of a plane? They do that thing where you, you push the intercom and say, yeah. there's nothing to worry about. Not realising that wasn't from a documentary on yeah, flying, yeah. it was from Python. Yeah. You absorb this stuff. There's a great story that Graham Linehan tells about the pilot of Father Ted, which was a 10-minute little scene taster they made for, for Channel 
Channel 4 and it's Father Jack has died in bed and Ted's busying himself around the bed opening the curtains and they it's very very funny and Dermot Morgan sells it brilliantly and they got the series off it and years later he and Arthur noticed it's 40 Towers it's what oh, it's, it's even blocked right, yeah. the same way as John Cleese fiddling with the curtains and talking to a dead person yeah. he said the reason it worked and they went that'll be a good sitcom is it was already a good sitcom <laughs> <laughs> it was 40 Towers he said it's not joke for joke but he said I realised that we'd got the blocking and the busying yourself and being nervous from something else we'd watched growing up and when we when someone said to us how do you make a sitcom yeah and you go well you have that man fiddling with the yeah. curtains yeah that's <laughs> absolutely and that's reminded me of the fourth type of, of plagiarism which is accidental because you meant it as a reference you meant it as a deliberate hat tip and people think that you're uh, <laughs> which I, I sort of know well enough I know how not to do that now but I did that again in Cabin Pressure I had Carolyn the sort of irascible figure answering a, a phone with what fresh hell is this uh, which was something that Dora Parker used to answer the phone with <laughs> and I meant it absolutely as uh, Caroline likes Dorothy Parker and she is quoting her but I would never do that now because it's too obscure a quote so it simply looks like I, I'm trying to get the credit for Dorothy Parker's line so you have to absolutely signal that you are you know these days you yeah if I, I wouldn't do that without saying yeah without mentioning her name <laughs> Throw Dorothy Parker into the back end of it to yeah. make sure it makes sense. Yes, although then, of course, it wouldn't work and so you wouldn't do it. So write your own jokes, Finnamore, you lazy bastard. <laughs> <laughs> but you're, you're allowed to because you've written too many. And now <laughs> Dorothy Parker is now your, your uh, secret uh, backroom boy. How will you be celebrating your millionth gag <laughs> uh, when you write it? <laughs> the thing is, I don't feel uh, prolific because... Don't you? I know, I don't. Seriously? I mean, you're right. I, mean I, I, I obviously am in that just how much I've written but I find writing so difficult and I feel so the writing process whatever it is I'm writing but particularly narrative anything with sketches are bad enough but anything with the narrative is so painful and takes me so long that my all of my feeling of myself about a writer is how lazy I am and how I give up too easily and how I got almost nothing done today or this week or this month or maybe even this year clap 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 and I just yeah and then because it's my it's my only job, and I've been doing it for a while now. Um, I, I I have written quite a lot of stuff, but I don't feel like that guy. And I know writers who are. I know. Uh, well, I mean, I always think of you two as extremely prolific, and also uh, Andy and Kevin, and um, mm. you know other guys who I just uh, always admire. The sort of um, what you're talking about there is basically a mixture of drive and guilt and self hatred. Yes, that um, sounds like a pretty good mix. I wouldn't say that I am a tortured... I'm not, I don't want you to think I'm a tortured artist who, uh, you know, I'm not flaying myself all the time. It's just that I find writing difficult and so I, I have a moderate and, I believe, earned level of guilt at the end of the day where I go, really? Is that all you've done? <laughs> yeah, you've earned some guilt today. Well done. <laughs> well, do, you, do you not write sort of 10 till 5 or whatever then? Do you sort of write I'm as tr- and when? As I say, I'm trying to be better at it, but um, I'm still not good at it. And I, I love the freedom of being self-employed and making my own hours and having a line if I want one and working through the night if I want to although more usually because I have to because deadlines yeah. uh, but I'm, I've been doing this for long enough now that I should have got over the joy of being my own boss and just yeah, worked out a system that works and probably do fewer hours but more more rigidly and more productively but I can't do it I think that isn't this that just seems fairly normal I mean I, most writers I know spend their entire life looking at other writers going they've got it right yeah. and it's a version of that thing you used to do at school where I'd go I can start my book project if I've got the right pen yeah. and the right pen I, I've yeah. got, I'll go and buy a new book and yeah. I'll write on the front special book project yeah. I don't think even Stephen King 
doesn't do that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you, uh, you're jealous of other people's methods as well. Like, oh, that's how they use their notebook, or that's all. Oh, that's how you're doing your post-its in the office we're in. There are post-its on the wall, and I'm going. Oh, so that's how they're right. He's got. Uh, they've, right. Uh, they've split the second act into two. I see. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and someone's a, got the secret. The idea is that uh, someone. And there's a stupid part like, of me that is going. Oh, this is how a real writer does it. Oh, if I was a proper writer, I'd do it like that. And we all feel like definitely frauds. making it. You know, even if you hate my stuff, even if people hate my stuff, I'm definitely. You know. This is my only job. So I'm <laughs> at the very base level. I can put on my passport writer. That is comedy writer indeed. That is what I do. But I still, it's not imposter syndrome exactly because I don't feel an imposter. I feel like I, I, I think I, I like my stuff. I don't feel like a fraud. I don't feel like I've, you know, no, everyone's writing great stuff and I'm writing this shit and somehow I'm getting away with it. I don't feel that. Uh, but then as, the imposter thing sneaks out in little, you know, as you, as you say, look at another writer's uh, notebook and go, oh, that looks proper. <laughs> <laughs> and I know people do that. I work a lot in notebooks and I know people do that with mine because I have quite small handwriting and I fill my pages and I do... You're um, human skin, isn't it? Spider that, drafts and, it's, well, and so on and so. I think people look at that and go, oh, that's... And, and I just look at it and go, what, that's... I mean, I've, what do you mean? I've done a doodle of the Pope on a mantelope in the corner there. What do you think that is? <laughs> I'm a child. <laughs> I, went, I went round the... Um, the the British Library's got an exhibition at the moment of Harry Potter, and it, I think it's just just closed. And it was basically Joe Rowling's um, notebooks and things. And I went round it exactly in that way. Went oh, right, so it's that sort of a pen. Yeah, and I yeah. genuinely thought if I had that sort of pen, I'd have sold yeah. four thousand million books. <laughs> and because it's the infantile brain that goes, I'm doing this wrong. Because I suppose well, that, no that really cargo cult thing of uh, yeah. okay, so if I can make a notebook that looks like that, then maybe and sit yeah. in that cafe in Edinburgh. Yeah, then I, then my and it's just this. <clears> I suppose it's because no one tells you how to do it. Yeah. Really. And when they do, you go, oh, God, I don't do it that way. And even if you're trying to copy someone's working methods, you, you're constantly guilty that you're doing it wrong. And then, yeah, I know in a more positive way, then once you've done it for a bit, I can take comfort in doing things the same way. So I have a, I, as I say, use notebooks and I have a different notebook for every series or every, you know, project. And so I can look at the, the ones I've filled or the ones that at least if not full, you know, produced the last series and go, okay, well, that's what it looks like when it's finished. And this is what it looks like now. And it's not that different. So <laughs> once it's more full, that will probably be another this, this series is, of the sketch. Yeah. This is a version of something which we've said a lot. I mean, I know Jason enjoys writing more than I do, but I say I don't really like writing. I like having written. Yeah, absolutely. And there's nothing I like more than looking through a notebook that's already full. Yeah, yeah. Oh, did that. Yeah. I'll have to do that again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know. It's a, yeah, or... I, I, more so, I would say, than listening to odd stuff, because then you always, perfectionist part of you, yeah. always, there's always something to spot, always go, oh, I do that differently. But when you look through an old notebook or read an old draft, yeah. it's not the finished draft, you go, you can allow yourself to believe that, oh, all of those, you know, those things would have, well, this is the, this is the majestic work in progress, this uh, platonic you know, idea. I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure. sure it was perfect when I finished it. <laughs> <laughs> I remember David Mitchell saying that, he said that every point from the point of someone saying, will you do this programme, is a massive compromise. And the best moment of any show is when someone says, would you like to do this show? And you go, it's going to be amazing. Yes, yeah. And at the moment you put the first word down and it's not as good as you were hoping, <laughs> every bit from that point is a slow descent into, into, into compromise. And actually the joy of a, of a notebook is that every one of those ideas could be the best thing you've ever written. Yeah, I can, I can make the, that uh, first moment last longer. I enjoy the first week of a new project because there's no pressure. It's not going to, it's no, no one's expecting to see a draft yet and it can be anything. And so I can write any silly old idea down and see where it goes. And there's that sense of, oh, this is, yeah, it's all of the fun and no uh, 
guilt uh, yet. There's no debt that you have to do this. You, this is an idea I'm working on, but you know, this is one way it could go as long as it's funny, but once I get bored of it, I can move on to something else and that's fine. That's what I should be doing. I should be exploring different paths before I pick the one. So I enjoy that bit. And then I enjoy the last week of a project where you've got the anti-penultimate draft and you're pretty pleased with it and you're just going through and thinking, oh yeah, I know that. Now I can make that, tie up with that. Or oh, I could change that name to something funny, putting the extra little extra jokes in. That's fun. And then there's the 90... 7% in the middle. <laughs> it is hard. I find it hard at every stage, almost all the time. And then I suppose the, the other enjoyable bit is every so often something takes flight and starts to make you laugh. And it might be a sketch, a particular sketch idea, which you just ha- you find yourself almost dictating to yourself. I mean, I'll polish it later, but I can get it all down on the page because it's making me laugh. Or even in a a narrative thing and there was a bit in Cabin Pressure where um, uh, one of the pilots makes forces the other to uh, tell an anecdote on PA about how he once did something ridiculous you know how he uh, outwitted a polar bear with an egg whisk that sort of thing <laughs> uh, as a punishment for you know the battle they're having animals uh, animals absolutely and uh, he's also making him do it in a French accent because he's introduced he said our captain will be Captain Ducreff and he uh, and so Ladies and gentlemen First Officer Richardson again as you know here at Unbeaten Track it's our pleasure to provide you with a short talk or anecdote one of the crew with particular knowledge of the region (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen your captain Hello (laughs) Well don't like to talk about this. Uh, and that bit, I remember walking down, I do a lot of writing while I'm walking, and uh, and then even note it down when I get back or just dictate it into my phone these days, and I can remember the stretch of the canal I was walking down, and I'm uh, dictating it in my silly French accent into my phone, <laughs> and it's just coming, and it just kind of came all in one piece and wasn't that much changed even by all the polishes and edits and that was that was fun and that was one tiny little moment in that episode most of which was because it's plotting that's the we've been talking about sketches but you know in episodes in in anything with a narrative the the plotting is that that's the killer and if you get it wrong if you get it wrong yeah everyone forgets all the jokes you've made. Yeah, absolutely. Even if the point is that the plot was supposed to be silly. Yeah. People go, well, that wouldn't happen. It, yeah. It's just jokes. That's that the genius of um, Airplane, that they yeah. they bought a, they bought a plot that worked. Yeah. They bought a B-movie and they made it not shot for shot, but plot point for plot point. So actually the story they tell, it's not an interesting story, but it's a perfectly good dramatic story. And then they can be, a, it's a, back to your point about the, the uh, bucket you know, to contain yeah. all the silliness because they are telling a disaster movie with the same characters and the same plot points as the original disaster movie. They can just be as stupid as they like with everything else. We, we found this, we, we did uh, a touch of cloth with Charlie Brooker and the idea mm. was literally, I mean, Charlie's good at taking ideas that have been done before and doing them again. He When he pitched Black Mirror, he said, I want to do Twilight Zone again. To say, <laughs> right. What they were frightened of in the 50s, I'll find what they're frightened of now. It's, yeah. it's, it's a really good way of saying, okay, let's let's try and do an idea in a new way. And when he did Touch of Cloth, he said, let's do the airplane Zucker Brothers mm. model. And to do that, he bought a script that was written by Boris Starling for Messiah, the oh, hard-bitten right. crime, bloody crime series. Mm. And he and Dan Meyer took that script and ripped it apart. It was an unfilmed episode that Boris had written. They, they took it apart. Then we got called in. We did a few rewrites on one, and then we got called in to do Touch of Cloth 2. Mm. And they said, right, okay, we want to do uh, a gang, uh, something about gangs, uh, like uh, undercover in a gang. And we said, so, so whose script are you buying? And they went, what? And we said, 
are you not going to buy another script off Boris? And they went, oh, no, no, this time around, we don't have one. So we had to write an entire uh, crime drama first and pitch it in and get yeah. it accepted and then take the pee out of our own script because you need the skeleton there first. Absolutely, so yeah. Another joyous moment in a plot where you go, oh, that, that, just that one thing's not working in Act 1, so I'll just lift that out and then Acts 2 and 3 come crumbling oh, down around you. <laughs> yeah. uh, but often in slow motion, you do that. It's the, it's Father Ted and his hammer mending the car. Yeah. yeah. It's there, uh, you go, <laughs> oh, yeah. I'll just get the dent out with the toffee hammer at the first act. Oh, but, I mean, I've just had this, actually, with something uh, else I'm working on. Just, okay... It was a note, and it was a reasonable note. We had a good note session with the producer, so I delivered the script. They'll say, yeah, you, we want the draft, and then we'll give you some rewrites, and that's part of the original fee. That's the, It's not, you've done it yeah, wrong, yeah. it's what's expected. Yeah. We'll have some notes for you. Part of your job is to do those notes. So that happened, and it was a perfectly amicable session in which everyone was decent, and the notes they gave were, uh, I either agreed with or thought, well, fair do, so that's perfectly reasonable, it's your call. So go back and do that. All right, so... So this thing that the main character does, you feel that makes him too unlikable. I can see that. Fine. So I'll make it a bit, you know, it's still a transgression, but it's not as bad as all that. Well, OK, but now why is she reacting so harshly? Yeah. Now she's unlikable. Ah, OK, so I'll make it that she thinks he's done the bad thing. Well, hang on, if they're in love, why doesn't he just explain? <laughs> OK, so I'll make it that he doesn't have time to explain. OK, well, what's stopping it? Oh, well, maybe the villain. And then you're rewriting the plot. And yeah, I yeah. ended up from that. That wasn't a micro note, but it wasn't a big thing. And neither the, neither the person giving the note nor I thought it was a, a big thing when we had that meeting. We thought it was a medium thing and it would take me a day or two. And then I ended up rewriting most of the first act and quite a lot of the second because everything oh. had a knock-on effect. It's and then, of course, and this is the, to, to be positive about it, oh, perhaps then rather than the villain being obviously the villain from the start, maybe it's one of those villains where it's the there's a reveal halfway through that he's or a third of the way through that he's actually not on the hero side. Oh, well, that's much better. So now I'm rewriting the, the villain's character to make him du du yeah. duplicitous and that's made the script better. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, you don't don't pull on those threads unless you have time. <laughs> it's, it's, it's an amazing process. We found that we were helping Paul King put the Paddington movies together. It's very mm. often you'd be called in for sort of reshoots and things after most of the the film had been shot, and you're pulling on threads with something that's already been made. Yeah, and you've got to build it out of the shots you've got. And yeah. sometimes the the rewriting process with plot is like doing a Lego set where you've only got the bricks you were given. Yeah, yeah. But, and, and that is when you start to really appreciate the, the technical craft of, of building a plot, which is sometimes yes. you're making it from the bits... It's it's a it's a limited set. Yeah, and and, you, and sometimes a limited set can be can be helpful because you don't it means you doesn't you don't have all the bricks in the world to yeah. build something yeah. Yeah. to build whatever you like from. No, you've got to build. Okay, so in the Lego analogy, even if you've just got the pirate ship Lego set, yeah. and then nothing's been built yet, but you've only got pirate ship bits. <laughs> now you don't want to build the pirate ship on the on the box because that's been done you've got to want to build something fun with this so you're going to build a castle or you know it's more like you start with the you know that big piece that forms the the stern and go okay well it's not a stern but i've got to use it somewhere so what is it what might that be and yeah. it's and i've got a sail as well so i've got a big piece of cloth and i've got this funny and then you think of something that links those yeah limitations and you get an idea really you never have otherwise yeah so sometimes it's just combining stuff and again because your brain works that way that's why accidental plagiarism sometimes happens you're yeah. reaching for things that are in the box already and sometimes yeah. they are uh, familiar tropes and familiar tricks and things like that and the, the delight is is the recombination rather than Everything being one hundred percent not was, a pirate ship. There was, um, and in um, you know, sitcom as well. When you actually defining your characters and they're making, it, it's very tempting when you're devising 
the setup to start with to try and leave everything open so that you've got plenty of wiggle room later so if I want him to have a sister later he can have one but if I need him to be any child that's fine actually I find these days the more you specify the characters not only do they become more real but also so in cabin pressure for the first series I didn't define the plane very much for exactly that reason I wanted it to be a sort of it's radio so it can be an elastic plane we don't have to think too hard about uh so in the first series there's a bit where it does a transatlantic flight no problem with clearly quite a lot of passengers and there's another bit where it seems to be almost a you know four-seater and that was all fine it's just it's a it's the plane we, we don't really and then I decided to in this when we got the second series I decided to define it and I sort of just worked out what kind of plane it would have to be for the operation they were running and mm. I worked out you know where how many agents it had and where they were and how many seats there were in the layout of the, and that was limiting but it made the plots after that so much better and there was one in particular that came out after me wanting to do actually it's back to the polar bears one me wanting I had an idea for a plot where they would take some people they would stand in for a company to uh, that wanted to go polar bear spotting, which is the thing you can do in Canada, where you all get in a light aircraft and you know try and spot polar bears. And I wanted our guys to do it, but the plane that I had invented couldn't possibly do that. It's a jet plane, it's too big, it's too noisy, it wouldn't go that low. But then, of course, that becomes a plot, because one of my pilots is gung-ho and loves flying, and would say, yeah, but if we you know, left out the fuel, left out half the fuel, <laughs> and if we... Uh, oh, it's, oh, and I also asked my aviation consultant about it who's my father uh, who was a pilot so in fact in my case not everything I know about planes is from and he got into he's sort of interested in the problem and went oh well if, but if you're in the Arctic then there's no trees so you can fly low and it's like oh well this is what Douglas would say and then Martin of course would be aghast at that and, and so suddenly you've got, got a yeah. it, it's one of the things that you find when you're writing to the page and you think I'll leave this all open I won't decide who this person is and at some point you're going to have to look an actor in the eyes yeah. and say they'll say so is he a nervous type and you go oh I didn't decide Yeah. so at some point someone's going to ask you who is this person mm-hmm. and it's really useful for you to have decided that because yeah. otherwise the costume department go Anorak cardigan yeah uh, it, just you want to know what and you end up wear. with a black because they'll have yeah there'll be a certain type of person there'll be a you know there'll be a really broad category but if you leave it stay at home dad or the mm. you know uptight pilot or whatever but that's the sort of the, the fusser well there's so many different ways to be to be mm. a finicky fusser in sitcom yes that's a standard sitcom trope and yes by god knows you can leave it uh, at that and someone will come along and do a perfectly decent job of of being a finicky fusser but it's not a real person and therefore it's not funny and it's not specificity going to, is yeah. where it's sometimes where the joke comes from yeah. victoria would always said that specific yes. biscuits not a biscuit yeah and again taking us back to and oh but she was great air. also not just about saying you know a specific biscuit but also about dropping in something from a character's not backstory but just hinterland uh <laughs> that she made it I'm thinking of that woman in um, the, the hikers she meets in uh, uh, the, the hiking episode of um, Mensana yeah. uh, which is one of my favourite bits the wild the, come on daddy and the wild blue Honda and so on uh, and there's a again I don't want to paraphrase it and mess it up but there's just a thing about oh well he can't do that not with his no see, that's going to mess it's, it up saying not with his bladder is the shape of a joke that a bad Victoria Wood impressionist <laughs> does especially if he's trying to do it on the hoof but what she actually does is so much more real and is just a real person who we happen to have met, not just a funny northern woman in a, in a sketch. What a lovely weekend you're going to have. What did you call it? Backpacking. Backpacking. Ooh, what a phrase or saying that is. But I'd walk for miles, but we're tied to the Honda with Daddy's groin. His tea drinking's pretty much censored since his operation. Excess liquid puts too much pressure on his tubular grommets, apparently. <laughs> Are you nearly done, Dad? 
I'm just adjacent to finishing them. But you, you glimpse a world beyond yeah. the, the line. And yeah. most people, when they're listening to comedy, are looking for clues. Yeah. You're trying to second guess one of the reasons that on the hour is delightful. You don't know what's going to happen next. Yeah. The characters are unpredictable, uh, but you know the shape of, of a news report, so you know roughly where they're going to go. But you listen for clues. Yeah. And those hints at a world beyond the line are what you've got in the way that Chris Morris bullies Alan Partridge. Yeah. There's a, what's that brilliant line where he, he does a long characteristic on the hour line that goes out of control. And at the end of it, backs off the mic and goes, who in sodomy wrote that? Yes. And you get the feeling that he doesn't like the new intern who's writing yeah. his VO script. Yeah. And that, that, that specificity, that, that note of when Alan Partridge says something that tells you what his life is like back in Norfolk, little yeah. clues, you're seeing within the fractal, you stare into the comedy and you see a truth beyond it. And that's not to do with anything wanky about, oh, comedy is truth. It's just, yeah. it's just funnier yeah. to have authenticity and to have thought about Everything about yeah. the engines on the plane. Yeah, and yeah. Who's in the office with Chris? Yeah. All did that you, stuff. Did, you like know, did you notice that Alan Partridge is married in On the Hour? There's a Mrs. Partridge who gets Mrs. referred to. And not only married, but widowed and then uh, reunited because she comes back from the dead. <laughs> <laughs> in one episode, one of the awkward throws to Alan is. Uh, Alan Partridge with today's sport. And I understand over the weekend, Alan, your wife died. Uh, certainly. Straight like a bolt out of the blue, as they say. Yeah. And then he does a sort of... It's a funny little sketch. And so, <laughs> oh, yeah, I was working on the extension and, um, yeah, suddenly a bolt in the blue and uh, certainly miss her. Uh, that, and then... <laughs> Uh, a couple of episodes later, so uh, I hear your wife came back from the bed. <laughs> yeah, uh, quite unexpected. Um, is, there, is there much of a smell? Ooh, a bit of a hoy. <laughs> hoy is such a perfect word for that. It's, it's a bit of a hoy, yeah, but uh, well, certainly I do love her. Putrefaction hasn't. What is it? Putrefaction hasn't. Oh, damn it, I can't remember, but. You know that um, there's. Uh, I've heard. I've heard one of these tapes. But but Chris sometimes used to get Steve Coogan in, um, get him into character as Alan Partridge, and just hit play and record. And Steve would just go off mm. for hours, monologuing away to himself as Alan Partridge. And, and Chris still has these tapes, oh, you know, wow. um, because Coogan is obviously slightly possessed by Alan Partridge, isn't he? He's he's someone he's found. Yeah within one of the the darker core of himself I think I love that when someone's got that that got someone else inside them yeah uh, it's, it's, I remember um, Thorpey from Viz saying that when he writes Mrs Brady old lady he said, I said how do you write that because it's, it's such authentic old lady isn't right. it and he said oh I just come in and say she's going to the doctors to Graham who does Roger Melly and Graham turns into an old lady and I write <laughs> as quickly as I can everything Graham says about really? the doctors and then he just sort of calms down the little old lady leaves him it's, it's like he's got like a spirit guy he's a little old lady and it's just verbatim Graham being an old lady I think we have covered quite successfully all of comedy with special reference to On The Hour good well I'm sorry I, to therefore you have to bring your podcast to a premature end before it's even begun because yeah. we've done it all now but yeah so oh, I, I well, think that's hey. it that's, that's finished I hope everyone enjoyed uh, discussing comedy yeah I, uh, I could come back and we'll do you know tragedy next time <laughs> or um, sport sport <laughs> <laughs> history repeats itself once as tragedy once as sport <laughs> never as comedy thank you very much John Fillimore thank you thank you for having me 